And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Good. Spring has sprung. Mm Mm-hmm. Lovely day outside. Mm Mm-hmm. Perfect time to watch a horror movie. Right, yeah, when the sun is shining and the weather's good and... You don't have a care in the world? Okay, that last part isn't true, but um, (laughs) yeah. Well, I'm doing pretty good as well. Just having a nice day with you, so yeah. Um, I believe we are into the new year. Yes, that's true. Uh, Today's movie is our first film of 1944. Mm -hmm. But before we get into the movie... We have a bit of business to take care of. Oh, yeah. Because we have a new patron on our Patreon, and that is Claire Holland. Thanks, Claire. If you would like to become a patron of the night like Claire, you can head over to patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. At higher levels, you get uh, rewards. $5 a month nets you bonus audio every week. $10 a month nets you horror short fiction that I write. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we're going to start doing bonus episodes, one a month, on horror-adjacent films. Uh, Stuff like Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, or Edward Scissorhands, or Dracula Untold. Dracula dead and loving it. No, I refuse. So thanks again to Claire. Holla at Claire Holland. I'm sure she's never heard that one before. I, I don't know where this like insistence on making jokes about the people who are giving us money is coming from, from you. It's, but you know, friendly banter mm-hmm. to make them feel like they're part of the family. Right. Is this what your family does? You know that this <laughs> is what they do. So that's patreon.com. Slash Scream Scene Podcast. So it's 1944. Mm-hmm. What are we watching? It's called The Uninvited. Should I should I leave? Am I uninvited from this podcast? There we go. So The Uninvited is from Paramount Pictures. This was sort of a conscious effort on the part of Paramount Pictures to sort of capture the success of the RKO films and compete with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had... Not a lot of movies from Paramount. They haven't been, like, a big player in the horror scene. Uh, But what we have have been some fairly memorable movies from them. Uh, Paramount Pictures has given us the 1920 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. With with, John Barrymore? That's right. The 1931 version of Jekyll and Hyde, which is currently number one on the list and has been for a very long time now. Since 1931. Yeah. They also gave us Island of Lost Souls. Right. Murders in the Zoo. Uh Uh-huh. Supernatural. Okay. And Dr. Cyclops. Well, you can't include Dr. Cyclops. I mean, tech- I guess they have given that to us, but it's not a horror movie. It's on the miscellaneous part of the list. But we watched it for the show, so, you know. Fair enough. Um, yes, all of those films have been quite memorable. Mm-hmm. So, to make this horror film that was going to compete with RKO, uh, Paramount took the... I guess, standard route of, like, an A-picture, big-name studio, 
which was to shop around for book rights to buy. And uh, what they ended up doing was uh, buying the rights to a novel called Uneasy Freehold by Dorothy McArdle. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me about this book and about Dorothy McArdle? Because I'm not even quite sure what the title Uneasy Freehold means. That just sounds like words being put together. <laughs> that's what all things are, Ben. I suppose that's true. Like Dracula is just a combination of letters I, yeah. that form a noun. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bear. <laughs> Dorothy McArdle is actually pretty cool. It was really interesting researching her. She was born in 1889 in Ireland to a wealthy brewing family who was known for McArdle's Ale. Hmm. After her education at Alexandra College and later University College, both in Dublin, she began to teach English at Alexandra. Okay. At this point, if folks aren't familiar with the history of Ireland, uh, the country was part of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. The late 1800s and early 1900s saw a huge push for what's kind of called home rule in Ireland, so Ireland, you know, running itself. Most of these efforts were kind of paused for a little bit when World War I started, but towards the end of the war, as well as after, Irish nationalism was largely focused on complete separatism. Now, I bring all of this up because Dorothy McArdle played a role in Irish independence. Mm-hmm. In a way. Okay. Um, not like a major way as like a notable revolutionary or politician or anything like that. Um, but she was definitely in that network. Alongside these republic and nationalist efforts were organizations like Conrana Gaelic, also known as the Gaelic League, which was a social and cultural organization promoting the Irish language. Um, McCardle was an active member in the League, as well as in the Cumendaman which was the Women's Council, kind of a paramilitary organization, which later became an auxiliary of the Irish Volunteers Army. Okay. Because of her involvement in these Irish nationalist organizations, she was arrested during the Irish War of Independence in around 1919-1921. The Republican movement won that war, sort of, in that the efforts culminated in the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921. Um, And the reason I say sort of is because that treaty established Northern Ireland as still in the UK and the rest of Ireland as a republic. McCurdle and other anti-treaty individuals fought against this treaty because they wanted a whole republic. So because of these critiques of the treaty, McCurdle was jailed several times by the free state government, actually. During the tumultuous 1920s, she wrote... Her first anthology, The Tragedies of Carrie, in 1922 and in 1923, um, she recounted her experiences in the Civil War in 1924's Earthbound, Nine Stories of Ireland. Most time, though, was spent writing her most well-known book, The Irish Republic, first published in 1937 and published again and again and again throughout the decades. Um, This book chronicles the political views and activities of Irish politician Amon de Valera, uh, who is one of the main politicians who introduced the Irish Constitution. In response to critiques of the book as um, being a bit too hagiographic in nature, McCardle stated, I'm a propagandist, unrepentant, and unashamed. Mm. 
So she's sort of Ireland's Washington Irving, then. I don't know who Washington Irving is. He's the reason why people think that Columbus proved the Earth was round and that George Washington never told a lie and that Ben Franklin discovered electricity. All that kind of stuff, like, because he wrote a bunch of, like, just mythological Mm. versions of American history for, like, schools in the 1800s. Sure, yeah, I think that's a great way to characterize the Irish Republic. She has written, or she did write both fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. During the 30s, she worked as a journalist with the League of Nations and would actually critique Ireland's kind of lack of policy on Nazism their neutrality during World War II, and the poor status of women in the 1937 Constitution. Mm-hmm. So what's this, like, politically active, like, Irish independence journalist historian doing on our horror movie show, Sarah? <laughs> well, like I said, so she wrote fiction alongside nonfiction. Her fiction work... Uh, it was usually published under the pseudonym Margaret Callan, but, you know, if you look up Margaret Callan, it just links right to Dorothy McCardle's website, or, like, her, her Wikipedia page. Sure. An Easy Freehold was published in 1941. Uh, it was published in the U.S. the following year as The Uninvited. Okay. And it's an Irish ghost story. Okay, like traditional folklore Irish ghost story, or just like a ghost story that's set in Ireland? A ghost story with Irish folk. (laughs) McCardle would write fiction and nonfiction continuously until she passed in 1958 at the age of 69 from cancer. Mm. So Uneasy Freehold follows the Anglo-Irish siblings Pam and Roddy Fitzgerald, leaving the hustle and bustle of London, They purchase an old dark house west of England overlooking the Irish Sea at a suspiciously low price. A price so low likely due to the rumors that a murder was committed 15 years prior on the grounds. Hmm. Slowly, the Fitzgeralds begin to believe the murder did happen and that the house is haunted by the remaining evil spirit. The person who sold them the house um, is this old man, and throughout the story you learn that his daughter Mary, her artist husband Lynn, and their daughter Stella lived at the house, um, along with Lynn's model and mistress, Carmel. Mm -hmm. Mary and Carmel died tragically, so Stella, the young daughter, was brought up by the grandfather who owns the house and has themes of motherhood, the blind, cold, ideal reverence of motherhood, and to the kind of perfect mother figure. Now, you mentioned you don't know what an easy freehold means. It's kind of like a weird combination of words. Yeah. Um, Freehold describes the absolute ownership of land or property. So you have, like, the freedom to to dispose of it at will. It's a freehold. Yeah. Okay. But it's, like, put to get into a single word. Right, okay, gotcha. So the title's supposed to be, like, you know, you could just, like, get rid of this any time, but you're uneasy to just lose it. Mm. To just let go. Right. But because of that, like, odd title, you can kind of understand why it was renamed when it was released in the States. From reading the synopsis of the book, the title change to The Uninvited kind of loses a layer of thematic meaning, it seems. But in any case, that's how it was released. So, the 
movie rights to Uneasy Freehold, or The Uninvited, were bought by producer Charles Brackett, who is the producer of this film. Born in 1892 in Saratoga Springs, New York, Brackett was a World War I veteran, a drama critic who wrote for The New Yorker, a five-time novelist, and a long-running screenwriter. He was president of the Screenwriters Guild, as well as the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences at various times in his career. He wrote 48 movies, collaborating with Billy Wilder on 13 of them, and was nominated for an Oscar for his writing for 1939's Ninochka, 1941's Hold Back the Dawn, 1946's To Each His Own, and 1948's A Foreign Affair. And he won for his writing for 1945's The Lost Weekend, 1950's Sunset Boulevard, and 1953's Titanic. So this is a big deal guy. Yeah, Brackett also went into producing. The Uninvited was his second film as a producer, but he would ultimately produce nearly 30 films over his career. He was nominated for Best Picture for 1950's Sunset Boulevard and 1956's The King and I, and he won for Best Picture for 1945's The Lost Weekend. To adapt the novel, Brackett brought on screenwriter Frank Partos, who was a frequent collaborator with Brackett in this period. Co-writing with Pardos was Dottie Smith, the English novelist who would go on to be best known for her books I Capture the Castle in 1948 and 101 Dalmatians in 1956. Oh, dang. Smith was born in 1896 and became interested in plays and the theater from a young age. She studied to become an actress at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and acted to entertain troops in World War I. Uh, but she stopped acting when her mother contracted breast cancer, and the two of them converted to Christian science. Oh, no. You might guess that her mother passed away. The other time Christian science has popped up on the show is with Dwight Fry. Yep. Didn't go well for him either. Through the 1920s, she had difficulty finding work, uh, gaining employment at a furniture store, while she was the owner of the furniture store's mistress. She sold her first play in 1931, and throughout the 1930s began to write a series of successful stage plays. She married her longtime friend and business manager, Alec Beasley, with whom she had worked at the furniture store, and the two moved to the U.S. due to her husband's status as a conscientious objector. It was during this period that she worked on the script for The Uninvited, uh, and they would not return to the U.K. until the early 1950s. The script for the film, uh, while it changes the profession of the lead character, uh, hews fairly true to the novel, uh, transplanting large chunks of dialogue verbatim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Roddy, the brother, is a playwright in the novel. And he writes music in the movie. Cool. Directing the film fell to Lewis Allen, who is making his directorial debut here. Allen was an Englishman who'd begun directing Broadway shows in 1935 after previous careers as a talent manager, actor, and merchant sailor. He'd signed a contract with Paramount in 1941, who put him through a couple of years in training uh, before giving him his debut. And during that training, he became friends with Brackett, who decided to give him his uh, debut with this film. He would continue to direct films through the 1940s before becoming a prolific TV director in the 1950s and 60s. For the lead role, Alan and Brackett cast Ray Milland. 
Born Alfred Reginald Jones in Wales in 1907, he served in the Household Cavalry, which is the two most senior regiments in the British Army, and while serving there, he was a crack shot with a rifle. While stationed in London, he met American actress Estelle Brody, and so in 1928 he left the army and began acting under his stage name. He bounced back and forth between stage and film and between the UK and the US throughout the early 1930s, before finally getting his break in 1936. During Dorothy L'Amour's audition for The Jungle Princess, Milan read opposite her, and when L'Amour was cast, she was upset when she discovered that Miland wasn't the lead actor and demanded that he be cast. <laughs> Jungle Princess was a huge success, and Miland got a leading man contract with Paramount. Through the late 30s and early 40s, Miland starred in a variety of romantic leading roles. Uh, so he was kind of not really taken seriously as an actor in this period. He was kind of like a pretty face that you put in, like, rom-coms, basically. So a similar... Uh situation that Frederick March felt like he was in. Yeah, absolutely. And he did Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of um, a 1940s, like, Hugh Grant type, maybe, or um, Colin Firth, in that, like, a lot of why he was considered to be, like, a charming leading man was also, like, the British thing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, Colin Firth is probably a better example than Hugh Grant, in my opinion. Are both of them in Bridget Jones? Yeah, they are both. Okay, Colin Firth goes on to be the king, and Hugh Grant never gets out of that genre, right? Correct. Okay. Milland insisted on doing his own horse riding stunts due to his time in the cavalry, which would eventually result in a severe head injury when he fell off his horse during a jump and the saddle came undone. From then on, Paramount disallowed him from future horse riding, even in his spare time. So Milan took up flying airplanes as a hobby <laughs> instead, which the studio found equally worrisome, and so they banned him from that. So Milan decided to take up a hobby that would be perfectly safe, which was woodworking. He then proceeded to catch his hand on the blade of a circular saw, no! losing part of his thumb and damaging the tendons in his left hand. He just shouldn't have hobbies. This injury led to him being rejected for military service in the Air Force when World War II broke out. This is why, you know, he's still here making movies. His big moment as an actor came after The Uninvited, when he appeared in Billy Wilder's The Long Weekend, which I've already mentioned a couple of times, where Milan played the lead role, which is an alcoholic writer. He won an Academy Award for his performance in the film, which was one of the first movies to seriously deal with the disease of alcoholism, and he became Paramount's highest salaried actor after that. Uh, later, he would star in Alfred Hitchcock's Dial M for Murder in mm -hmm. 1954, and starting in the late 50s, he started directing as well as acting, mostly on television. Good for him. Portraying his sister in the film is Ruth Hussey, who was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1911. She was a former stage actor, model, and radio announcer who'd been signed to MGM in 1937 by a talent scout and was commonly cast as a leading lady in B-movies. In 1940, she was nominated for an Oscar for The Philadelphia Story, which is probably her best-known role. As the old man who sells them the house... We have Donald Crisp, 
who was the actor who played the father of Lana Turner in the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde. In our episode on that movie, I talked about how he sort of created his own life story when he came to America, uh, how he played Ulysses S. Grant in Birth of a Nation, how he transitioned to directing before going back to acting full-time because he didn't like dealing with studio executives, and then how he became one of the richest and most powerful men in Hollywood through his membership on the board of directors of the Bank of America. So if any of that sounds interesting and you want more detail, you can check out that episode. Uh, But he's back here again in another sort of older authority figure role. That's episode 87, if you want to hear more. Cornelia Otis Skinner plays a major role in the film as the coded lesbian character Miss Holloway. Skinner was the daughter of two actors. She was born in 1899 in Chicago. She wrote and performed a series of one-woman shows through the 1920s, as well as authoring the memoir, Our Hearts Were Young and Gay, with Emily Kimbrough, which was the story of basically the two of them backpacking through Europe, like after college kind of thing. (laughs) Um, And this memoir was adapted both as a film uh, in the 1940s and as a television series called The Girls in the 1950s. Also appearing in a significant role in this film is Alan Napier, Uh, a 41-year-old actor who we saw in The Invisible Man Returns and in a very minor role in Cat People, but who, of course, is best known for playing Alfred the Butler in the 1960s Batman TV show. A very small role in this movie is played by actress Moyna McGill, who is a very experienced performer in her own right, but is probably best known today for being the mother of Angela Lansbury. Oh. And that brings us to Gail Russell, who is introduced in this film, playing the role of Stella. She was born in 1924, uh, and she attended high school in Los Angeles, where she was scouted by a Paramount employee uh, who drove past her school one day. Basically... That's creepy. Yeah, it gets better. Uh, He was driving past the school and, like, spotted some kids, like, just walking down the street, and, like, kind of slowed down, rolled down the window... Uh, and you want said, to be a star, don't you? Pretty much. Get in the uh, car. Basically. Uh, says that to this, like, pretty girl in the group of friends. And one of the guys in the group says, like, you know, because he, he said something, like, to this girl, like, oh, you're really beautiful. Like, you could be a movie actress. Like, I work for Paramount. Like, do you want to come and do a screen test? And one of the guys in the group of friends was like, oh, she's nothing. We have this girl in our class named Gail Russell you should really see. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Different times. (laughs) She was immensely shy. She had no acting experience. uh, But her beauty attracted the studio, who thought that she kind of looked like a young Hedy Lamarr. And so they signed her to a long-term contract at age 18 and hired an acting coach for her. As she put it, quote, Suddenly there was a terrific amount of work and no time for myself, unquote. She made her debut at age 19 in the 1943 comedy Henry Aldrich Gets Glamour, which was part of the Henry Aldrich series, which was just like a a long-running college comedy series. Um, And she actually dropped out of appearing in the sequel to that in order to appear in The Uninvited. And because that was kind of her first dramatic A picture, that got advertised as being her introduction. Director Allen wasn't happy with how inexperienced Russell was, and was relieved when Ray Milan took it upon himself to coach her in between scenes. 
However, this wasn't really enough to assuage Russell's lack of self-confidence, and she began drinking between takes in order to alleviate her stage fright. And this would lead to lifelong alcoholism, which would eventually lead to a series of arrests in the 1950s for various incidents, which would lead to her being dropped from her contracts, which would lead to her career spiraling uh, down the drain, which would lead to her alcoholism getting worse, which would eventually lead to her death from liver failure in 1961 at age 36. Damn. Now, while the movie is set in Cornwall, the film shot in California and Arizona. It would be the first American feature film to portray a haunting seriously, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to using ghosts for comedy or revealing them to be hoaxes or distractions to cover up, you know, that you're robbing the house or that you're actually a Nazi spy or whatever. Yeah. The music for the film is by Victor Young, a 22-time Oscar-nominated composer. By this point? Uh, no, no, not by this point. Uh, just overall. He was awarded only once, posthumously, for 1956's Around the World in 80 Days. He has the record for most nominations before winning. Sometimes, man, I hate the Academy. <laughs> Sometimes, man. For The Uninvited, he wrote the song Stella by Starlight, which became a jazz standard and was a huge hit multiple times as recorded by various different artists of the era, including Frank Sinatra. Cinematography in the movie is by Charles Lang, who won an Academy Award in 1932 for the movie Farewell to Arms, which was also for Paramount, and whose style of lighting was considered to be the standard for all Paramount films through the 1930s and 40s. Interesting. He was nominated for an Oscar for The Uninvited, so this film has Oscar-nominated cinematography, uh, and he had a career total of 18 nominations. He is tied for the most Best Cinematography nominations. Uh, Other films he did that you might have heard of include the 1939 Cat in the Canary, um, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, uh, The Big Heat, Sabrina, Some Like It Hot, The Magnificent Seven, and How the West Was Won. The costume designer for this movie is another, like, famous, multi-award winning person. Uh, It's Edith Head, who's probably, like, the most famous costume designer in the history of movies. Oh, okay. Um, I don't really recognize the name. Well, you'd probably recognize her if I showed you a picture of her, because she was the inspiration for the character of Edna Mode in The Incredibles. Ah, uh, that's great. <laughs> At this point in time, she was Paramount Studios' costume person. Like, I could list off movies that she worked on, but it would be semi-pointless, because we would be here all day, and it would be basically just everything Paramount made from 1930 to 1965. Sure. Um, She was nominated for 35 Academy Awards and won eight. Damn. So... Get it, girl! Yeah, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, she has, like, a record as, like, the most wins for a costume designer. Um, But, yeah, she's kind of a big deal. The editor for the film is uh, also a acclaimed person. His name is 
Doan Harrison. Uh, his career began in the silent era in the 1920s, but he signed on to Paramount in 1935. And his big claim to fame is he was Billy Wilder's editor from 1942 to 1954, over 10 films. Um, so you can kind of see like a pattern. You know, we've got Billy Wilder's script writing partners and his producer and his editor and his cinematographer. Like, it's basically the crew that made Billy Wilder movies, but making this like weird horror movie off by themselves. Interesting. Um, Harrison was nominated for three Oscars. Uh, two of which were for The Lost Weekend and Sunset Boulevard, both of which I've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So pretty much everyone except for Gail Russell is kind of a big deal here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Late in the production of the film, Paramount decided that they wanted to go all in on the supernatural thing, not hedge their bets. Interesting. So they decided to really put their money behind the premise and spent additional funds to add special effects to the film in order to depict the ghost on screen. What? Awesome. Ironically, UK censors ended up cutting all explicit depictions of the ghost, uh, which led to praise for Lewis Allen in uh, that country for exercising tasteful, subtle restraint. (laughs) All the the British critics were so impressed that this American movie was being so subtle and tasteful, not actually showing the ghost, uh, but it was just the censors cut it out. (laughs) U.S. censors had a different issue with the movie, which was its lesbian content. Yes. Uh, After the movie's release, the Hayes office wrote a memo detailing that, quote, audiences of a questionable type unquote, attended screenings of the film at, quote, unusual hours, unquote, drawn to the film by its, quote, certain erotic elements, unquote. And the memo warned for the Hayes office to guard against such subject matter in the future. In other words, we we, we accidentally let one slip through, boys, and a bunch of the gays showed up for midnight screenings, so, no, watch, make sure they don't sneak any lesbian stuff into any future movies. Jeez Louise. So The Uninvited was released on February 10th, 1944. It cost $1.5 million, uh, which puts it above the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde and below the 1943 Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, well, that Phantom was, like, way up there. This is still probably the second most expensive movie we've seen for the list so far. Mm-hmm. But it was a big box office success for Paramount. Uh, the success of the film led to two different unofficial follow-ups. Um, not really sequels, but, like, pairings of the same, like, actors and crew. The Invited and the You're Invited. No. <laughs> Um, one was Our Hearts Were Young and Gay, uh, the oh. movie version of actress Cornelia Skinner's memoir, which was directed by Lewis Allen, and wherein Gail Russell played the younger version of Cornelia Skinner. Huh. So she acted with her in this movie and then plays her in her next movie. That's cool. Um, and then the other follow-up was 1945's The Unseen which was also directed by Lewis Allen and also starred Gail Russell, but was more of a standard murder mystery than, like, a horror ghost story thing. Are either of those going to be watched by us in the future? No, because one of them is a 
memoir about a bunch of college girls on backpacking through Europe. And the other is just that like, could be horror. You don't know. And the other is just like a uh, like a whodunit. Uh, the movie was very well regarded by critics at the time, uh, and now as a mature ghost story. And the film is currently available on Blu-ray as part of the Criterion Collection. Oh, is it on the Criterion streaming service then? Not yet. Uh, I suspect it will eventually. They seem to be, like, rolling out movies from the collection in, like, a little bit of waves because there are, like, 900-plus movies in the Criterion Collection by now. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus all of the additional things they do. Yeah, they're putting all kinds of stuff on the Criterion channel right now, so uh, it, it didn't come up. So right now, if you want to watch it, you have to buy the Blu-ray. Okay. Uh, well, folks, if you would like to watch along, find the Blu-ray, or just wait for the Criterion channel to catch up to whatever number The Uninvited is, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Uninvited, directed by Lewis Allen from 1944. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone we just finished watching the uninvited from 1944 directed by lewis allen ben did you feel invited into this movie experience i mean were you welcomed i don't know how to answer that question because you're doing a bit and i'm not sure how to honestly answer the bit uh sure we'll say yes interesting but uh overall i liked this quite a bit I enjoyed it. So it's safe to say, I think, that this kind of, like, fits in the gothic mold. Oh, 100%. Um, Why don't you run us through the story? Well, it definitely has that old dark house feel. Yeah. um, Since there is an old dark house. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's 1937, and Roderick Rick Fitzgerald and his sister Pamela are vacationing along the Cornwall coast. And it's good that we clarified with the movie that it's 1937, because... We know boy. what year it is. Yeah. Well, we know what year it is, but if it was present tense, it'd be like, mm, I don't know if you want to be vacationing on the coast right now. I mean, it's not the coast that's facing Europe. It's the coast that's facing Ireland. I guess. Fair enough. Still. So as they are vacationing, Rick and Pamela come across an abandoned house known as Windward House. They absolutely love it, Pamela anyway, and they plan to buy it from a Commander Beach. His granddaughter, Stella, doesn't want to sell the house, but the grandfather's like, no, this is what we need to do. And he's willing to, like, let it go for 1,200 pounds, I think was the selling price, Mm -hmm. which is soups low for this very nice, pretty well-taken-care-of house. It's a mansion. Like, it's a cliffside manor. Yes. Now, the Fitzgeralds are a little suspicious with this low price. The commander waves it away, just saying, you know, there were rumors about activities. And they're like, okay, well, you know, he'll take our money, so. Yeah, he also makes it clear that, like, he just needs to get rid of it. Like, he and the granddaughter aren't living in it. They can't afford to take care of it anymore. Like, it just needs to be gotten rid of. Mm -hmm. Now, 
part of the reason why Stella doesn't want to sell the house is she grew up in the house until she was three when um, her mother died. She fell off the cliff in an accident and then she went to live with her grandfather. So it feels like this is her last connection to her mother um, and that's why she doesn't want to sell it. But they do sell it and Pam and Rick move in and they notice some weird chills, drafts, and ghostly sobs in the middle of the night. The manor is haunted. Yeah, I think the sobs are probably, like, the big one. Like, Rick tries to play it off like, oh, maybe they're echoes coming from an underground cave. But, like, you have rooms that are cold with no explanation. It's like, mm, you know, houses are weird and old and have bad insulation. You have drafts. It's like, well, it's the wind. But you have, like, these sobs aren't like, ooh, it's just the wind. It's like, no, that is a lady crying. Yeah. Like, they are, nope, you've got a ghost, my sir. <laughs> Meanwhile... Stella and Rick are getting a little closer. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Grandfather Beach tries to, you know, put his foot down, say, no, Stella, I don't want you anywhere near that house. Mm -hmm. Now, he also doesn't really want Stella hanging around with Rick, but it's like, always comes down to the fact that to be around Rick means to be in the house, and he does not want her in the house. Yeah, he expresses it like, I don't want you to be friends with the Fitzgeralds, but definitely the problem seems to be because the Fitzgeralds live at the house. Yeah. Stella disobeys him and goes to Windward Manor for dinner, where she senses kind of a calming spirit, kind of the presence of her mother. And then suddenly, as if in a trance, she dashes out the door towards the cliff, and Rick stops her just in time before she just runs off the cliff. Um, and she has no recollection of this happening. Mm -hmm. um, she also faints a little bit later in the night, so they call up Dr. Scott to come to the house and check up on Stella. Great Scott. <laughs> so with talking with Dr. Scott, you know how small towns like to gossip, Rick and Pamela learn that Stella's father had an affair with his model, Carmel. The father was a painter. Um, the known to be quite virtuous and pious Mary, uh, the wife and mother of Stella, found out and sent Carmel to go to Paris. Carmel came back, tried to steal Stella, and pushed Mary off the cliff. That's the story they get. Yeah, I mean, I think different versions of this story get told for sure throughout the movie, and they get sort of weird, you know, bits and pieces as they go, and the story keeps changing, but that's... That's kind of the core story they get. I do just have to say that, like, I would hate to have the name Mary Meredith. Yeah. Well, like, she married into this, the Meredith yeah, family. Yeah, because she's so. Mary Beach. But, like, yeah, so it was, like, her choice to be Mary Meredith. But, like, <laughs> why would you? The money, Ben. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and we also learn through the story that Carmel became sick with pneumonia after this and died shortly thereafter. Rick feels it's unsafe for Stella to be at the house, but she insists because this is, you know, her connection to her mother. How dare you try to impede me connecting to my mother in this way? Um, so Rick is like, okay, well, I can fake a seance and, like, make it seem like her mother loves her and doesn't want her at the house. Therefore, Stella will, will stop wanting to be at the house. Yeah. The ghosts take over the, the real seance. ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes clear that Stella's mother is trying to act as a guard for Stella from some sort of evil presence in the house. 
This is also when we get solidified that the scent of her mother's perfume, um, the scent of mimosas, just kind of overwhelms the room whenever the, the good spirit basically comes into the room. Yeah, there's there's sort of this gradual process where they figure out they don't have one ghost, they have two ghosts. Mm-hmm. Because they kind of, I think the idea of like, oh yeah, it's the you know woman who died here comes to them pretty you know early because, hey, we also have a woman crying in the house. But then it's clear that like there's a presence that's cold and malevolent and a presence that's warm and smells like mimosas. Yeah. Um, which are a type of flower. They're not talking about like the drink mimosa. Sure. That's a good thing to clarify. <laughs> Stella, with the seance, suddenly becomes possessed and is speaking Spanish, which she does not know, Which and it was neat. I enjoyed that. Also should have been these fools' first clue, but we'll get to that. Well, it's, it's a clue. Hey, by the way, Carmel um, is apparently a Spanish, uh, they use the word gypsy, which is like, you know, hold back the racism, friends. I will also say, like, they don't use the word in like a, ah, that was just the term back then kind of tone. Like, every time they say it, they say it, like, slurry. You know what yeah, I mean? as if they would, you know, spit on the ground after saying her name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of an unpleasant, unpleasant bit of the movie. Unpleasant part of the movie, yeah. So when Stella starts speaking Spanish, that's kind of your clue of, like, huh, Carmel's spirit is here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Commander Beach, the grandfather is, like, furious that this has happened with Stella, so he calls up an old acquaintance known as Ms. Holloway, uh, who apparently was, like, a nurse in the house when Stella was young, and she now runs a sanatorium. As you do. It's a, it's more like a hotel for crazy people. Yeah, that's it's, how they describe it. It's, it's, the, no one here is a patient, they're guests. Welcome to Miss Holloway's home for... Troubled children. For troublesome women. Yeah. Is really probably the more accurate description. Yeah, there's there's things to unpack there. But first we need to finish the synopsis. Yes. So Rick and Pam don't know that Stella has been sent there. um, But Ms. Holloway's name pops up when they're doing investigating about the past. So they go to visit her. She explains that, you know, I did take care of Carmel after Mary's death. She had pneumonia. Um, and kind of solidifies a bit of the story, except that the way that she talks about Mary and the way she kind of goes back and forth between whether Mary told Carmel to leave or whether it was the dad, Meredith, who told Carmel to leave, gets a little fuzzy. So the Fitzgeralds are like, hmm, something doesn't quite seem right here. Yeah, Stella has this um, knowledge of like kind of what her mother looked like because she has this giant oil painting of her mother in her room because, as we mentioned, the dad's a painter. And uh, Miss Holloway has, like, a gianter oil painting of Mary Meredith in her office and likes to go on big, rambling monologues about Mary's perfect skin and dazzling hair. To be fair, she is alone when she goes on those monologues. She's not um, saying these things to the Fitzgeralds or anyone. Yeah, she in one of these moments... She turns to the painting and says that she'll protect the past. Mm-hmm. I'll protect you, Mary. Yeah. After this scene, of course, we see Dr. Scott going through his records, and uh, the records indicate that Ms. Holloway uh, might have had some gross medical negligence in treating Carmel. Um, the doctor at the time was like, mm, 
pretty sure Carmel was murdered. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where it's like, I'm caring for this person with pneumonia. I'll just leave the window open in the middle of winter. Yes. And walk away. (laughs) When the Fitzgeralds learn that Stella is at the sanatorium, they go to confront Holloway. Um, They phone ahead? Yeah, bad move. Yeah. Bad move. So Holloway is like, ah, I need to get Stella out of here. Now, in the last visit, the Fitzgeralds mentioned that Stella kind of got possessed and ran out towards the cliffs. Um, So Holloway is like, I will send Stella home on the train deliberately to Windward. And she turns to the painting and says, and then, Mary, you will finish what you have planned for her or something along those lines. Yes, all the loose ends will be tied up. Yeah, because you see, Holloway isn't right in the head. No. So Stella goes onto the train. Meanwhile, the Fitzgeralds arrive at the sanatorium and confront Holloway, and she's like, you're too late, Stella's already back at the house. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she kind of goes, that's when she goes, like, real loony, and it's revealed to the rest of the characters that she's not completely there. We cut to Stella at the house, arriving at Windward, and the grandfather is at the house um, because he wants to try to keep her away. And Stella's like, no, you're, you're sick and dying. I'm not going to leave your side. And that's when a ghost appears. Now, by this point, this is, I think, the second mm-hmm. time we've seen the ghost in the actual film. But this is the first time that the grandfather is seeing it. And he has a heart attack. And, and definitely and, dies. And is dead. <laughs> yeah. The Fitzgeralds are racing home, where just as they were pulling up, we hear screams coming from inside the house Um, and this is right after we see Stella see the ghost. She thinks it's her mom, so she's like, Mom! And then is clearly terrified. Cut to her screaming, running out out of the house towards the cliff, and she stops right at the edge, and the cliff gives way because the code probably wouldn't be able to have her running straight over. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Fitzgeralds, Rick, catches her hand and pull her up. Yeah, just in time. Just in time. So they bring her in, and, you know, Dr. Scott's like, there's nothing I can do for your grandfather. And the pleasant spirit of mimosas Mm -hmm. has been opening the medical records to certain pages, and everyone reads and finds out that from these medical records, Carmel gave birth, and Stella is her daughter, and that it was Mary, in a jealous rage, tried to kill Stella, picking her up and trying to, like, throw her off the cliff. Mary fell during the fight with Carmel, and then as revenge for Mary dying, Holloway killed Carmel. Yes. Now, this realization uh, with Stella, she's very happy. Um, She's like, you know, I never really felt all that connected to Mary, my mother. I feel at peace knowing that Carmel is my mother, and um, Carmel's spirit um, becomes freed. Yeah. From the house. You hear her laughing instead of sobbing. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, like Stella talks about how, like, throughout the whole movie, she never shuts up about her mother, right? Like, that's her whole deal. She felt very connected to her mother, but, like, she never felt connected to, like, how Mary. to Mary, how people described the person she thought her mother was, right? Which is sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, then it all makes sense when you find out it's Carmel, as yeah. well as the mimosa scent. Yes. But... Mary's ghost still intends harm to Stella, so Rick 
makes everyone leave the house and he confronts the ghost with a candelabra, uh, saying to Mary that they are no longer afraid of her. She has no power here. And then he, like, throws the candelabra at the ghost that we see on screen, and her spirit dissipates, um, and she departs. And it's nearly the end, um, but we do need to just have a bit of a sunrise coming up, Stella and Rick holding each other, Pamela and Dr. Scott holding each other, because their romance has been brewing throughout the whole movie, um, and it ends with talk of some weddings coming up, but also presumably a funeral, because the grandfather did die. So there will be two weddings <laughs> and a funeral. <laughs> fair. The end. Very fair. Yeah, I I liked this quite a bit. Um, I'm not really sure where to start in discussing things, because there's a lot we can kind of, like, pull apart here. There's a lot uh, of threads to pull on. Yeah, Miss Holloway's attempt to uh, straighten out those threads and get rid of those... Loose ends, the fraying ends. Um, Did not work. (laughs) So I I feel like I haven't had an opportunity to talk about this because I feel like we haven't had a ghost movie, really. Mm -hmm. Like, all the ghosts that we've had in movies have more or less turned out to be fake. Or, like, not a big deal. Like, in Ghost of Frankenstein, when the ghost of Frankenstein shows up for one scene to be like, No, really, grandson, do the thing! And then disappears. (laughs) Um, I feel like the last time we had, like, for real, real ghosts was, like, Phantom Carriage. Supernatural. Okay, yeah, but it wasn't... Supernatural was more of, like, a possession movie. Like, the ghost never on its own was, like, doing stuff and appearing and being spooky. Like, it had to possess people to have agency, right? Which gives it a bit of a different feel than, like, a haunting movie. Sure. But you are right. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I haven't had a good chance to talk about this, but it is definitely pertinent to this movie. Um, I hate ghosts. Really? Like, I don't mean that in the sense that I hate them as, like, a story element, or I don't like ghost stories, or whatever. I mean, like, I hate ghosts the same way that, like, you hate zombies. <laughs> like, I find ghosts to be terrifying. Really? Um, I don't know if terrifying is the right word, but, like, they definitely give me, like, a major case of the heebie-jeebies. Like, uh, like I, I don't know the word for the emotion, but, like, the sound it makes is, ugh! Um... <laughs> Yeah, that's how I feel about zombies. And the thing is, like, I don't believe in ghosts. Like, I 100% don't believe in them. And I find, like, you know, ghost hunting TV shows to be stupid and, like, the whole cottage industry of, like, mediums to be a sham. And I just, it's it's all bullshit. And I feel like that's the reason I'm scared of ghosts. Because, like, to me... What is frightening about ghosts is like how very vividly not here they should be. Like, with a zombie, it's like you have a body, and it's in the ground. And, like, yeah, it shouldn't be moving around. <laughs> but, like, if it is, you know, like, we've already established, like, magic exists in the world or whatever in the context of a story with zombies. You know, the body's there. It's a physical thing. Like, Ghost, especially if you, there is a visual, like there is in this movie, where we get, like, the see-through, misty, cloudy kind of thing with the face. Yeah. Um, I hate that, because it's just, like, such a example of something that, like, should not be. <laughs> um, oh, man. I, I love ghosts. I love ghost stories. I love the ghost hunting TV shows. I love BuzzFeed Unsolved. I love, like, really terrible reality TV shows where they show reenactments of, like, <laughs> the haunting. I don't 
hate ghost stories. Like, I like ghost stories. I think they're a fine element for a horror movie. Um, But I do just find them, like, I find ghosts bother me on a deep level in a way that, like, other horror movie things, like, don't. Like, I'm not afraid of vampires. Yeah. You know? Um, No, I I think your comparison to how I feel about, like, George Romero zombies, mm -hmm. to be specific, um, I think that's accurate. I think the difference is, if there is one, is, like... I, I'm still okay watching things with ghosts in them, but, like, my my definite, like, visceral reaction to ghosts is fuck ghosts. <laughs> so anyways, with all of that said about how much I hate ghosts, uh, the ghost effects in this movie are top-notch, mm-hmm. and they absolutely gave me the heebie-jeebies in the way that they should. Um, yeah. The movie does ghosts very well. Um, the moaning cries, the odd sounds, the uh, strange, you know, changes in temperature, the apparitions. It's The it's way a- that the candles go down and back up. Right. Like, that was really cool. It's all there enough to definitely be a ghost, but it's still subtle enough not to kind of, like, blow the fear by being too garish and ridiculous. <laughs> because I talk about, like, oh, ghosts scare me or whatever, but, like... You know, nearly headless Nick doesn't scare me. Like the you know Casper ghosts don't scare me. Like <laughs> like once they they take on like a certain level of like oh that's just a person that you can talk to. Poor reality. Yeah, like you know when a ghost is like I I don't get really afraid in most adaptations of like a Christmas Carol because the ghosts are characters who can just sit down and talk to you, right? Except for Ghost of Christmas Future, that guy's terrifying. Yeah, the special effects were very eerie, very well done. Um, yeah. The cinematography and directing in this movie were very good. Um, the The whole movie felt very spooky and atmospheric. Um, even when it was daylight, uh, they still had some shadows going on, but it was light enough that it was like, ah, oh, it's daylight, you're, you're a little safe. Mm-hmm. And then the darkness at night was almost suffocating. It was really good. Uh, Yeah, I really admired the cinematography in this movie because, so the house isn't wired for electric lights. So they have to, like, turn candles on. Turn candles on? They have to uh, light candles throughout the house to have lights. And when they, you know, blow out the lights, um, in, in most movies, especially movies of this period, you would still light the rooms. You would have moonlight come in, and you would still be able to see things. It was kind of taboo for cinematographers to let the picture just get enveloped in blackness. Mm -hmm. Occasionally you would do it for story reasons, like if you need a character to come out of the shadows dramatically, right? This movie, Charles Lang, the cinematographer here, lets the house go completely black in vast areas. And it works so well, because, you know, watching the movie, your brain does exactly what it does in real life when you're wandering around a house that all the lights are off in, which is like, start worrying about what's in the dark that you can't see, right? Yeah. When someone's carrying like a a lit candle, there's a little spotlight on them. I don't know. They do a really good job here. There's like a scene where they're in like the living room, I think, and the doorbell rings and they send Dr. Scott to like go get the door (laughs) and he like walks off into blackness. Yeah. And then you have to wait a couple seconds for him to like, come back and he's fine and everything's fine but like it's just enough to like make you worried about what's going to come out of the shadows right yeah i think acting wise everyone was doing pretty good Mm -hmm. even gail vessel yeah she gives a surprisingly good showing for you know a first time performance from a reluctant actress who was drinking between every take 
I thought that she embodied the many facets of Stella quite well, where she's kind of young and cute and, like, wants to have fun and, like, make friends, but she's also kind of, like, weirdly empty inside and kind of, like, obsessed with her mom in, like, a weird way that's a little off-putting and, like, comes across, like, very sheltered, like, that, like, she's never met anyone other than her grandfather before is kind of the feeling you get. Mm -hmm. Um... And I think in some ways her age, like she's, Stella the character is said to be 20. That's how old Gail Russell was. And um, I think in a lot of ways her age and her inexperience help sell like how sheltered Stella mm-hmm. was and also help sell like the idea that she needs to be protected. She's very, very vulnerable. And it makes sense that all the characters start like rallying around whatever their ideas of protecting her are because she seems like someone who can't you know, isn't safe on her own. Yeah, definitely. I will just say, they don't explicitly state how old Rick Fitzgerald is, Mm -hmm. but I'd put him, like, 35. Yeah, this is my one big problem with the movie. Um, So Ray Milland was 36, Mm. and Ruth Hussey, who's playing Pamela, was 33. And even, like, together acting, they work really well as siblings. Yes. Yeah, you really get that feeling Yeah, like, they're, they're both great actors. They're doing fine. I just feel like the movie would work a little better if Rick and Pamela were, like, between 25 to 29 years old. Because the idea is supposed to be, like, they're two siblings who live together, which is, like, weird enough that, like, there are characters in the movie who mistake them for being married or find it weird when they realize that they're siblings and not a married couple. And it kind of seems like they're also struggling to establish themselves. Like... Rick has a job as a music critic in London, but what he really wants to be is a composer. And they have to put all the money they have in the world to buy this old place. And their backstory isn't, like, super gotten into, but they give enough hints through the movie that you can piece it together. The idea that, like, they grew up in a house like Windward, like, they're from a family that probably, like, was rich or had wealth. Their parents are probably dead. You know, they've got jobs in London. They're trying to make it as, like, working people. Um, but Pamela clearly misses, like, the old big house. Because when they buy Windward, they have this old servant from, like, the old days who they can hire, this old Irish servant. Lizzie. Who can come and just be their servant again, but clearly wasn't being their servant in London. And there's all this old furniture they can get out of storage to fill the house with and stuff, mm-hmm. right? So the feeling I get is, like, you know this is the first house they're buying. Like, they were living in apartments in London. They were living together because they're not making, like, enough income yet to split up. Uh, You know, neither one is married yet, Mm -hmm. which is, like, for 1937, weird if you're, like, if you're a woman in the 30s and you're in your mid-30s and not married, like, oh, give up now. Like, you're done. Like, it's weird, right? Like, I feel like in the story, they should be in their late 20s. And if they are, that makes Rick coming on to Stella feel like a lot less weird, right? Like, if he's between 25 to 29 and she's 20, like, for my money, that's still a little young. But, like, it's not weird young like 36 and 20 is, right? Yeah. That being said, like, I had a hard time. I was trying to figure this out for myself. Why? Okay, let me back up. Intellectually, I know that 36 dating 20 is icky and gross and weird. You know, you can make a bunch of arguments about, like, age of consent, whatever, legal, legal, blah, blah, blah. But, like, it, it's weird and it's gross and it's icky on paper. In the movie, it also kind of feels icky and gross and weird. But then you look at, like, another movie that came out the same year as this, uh, To Have and Have Not, 
which was the first pairing of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Mm -hmm. And when they made that movie, Humphrey Bogart was 45 and Lauren Bacall was 20, just like Gail Russell. And Bogie and Bacall never feel weird and icky to me. So I was trying to like... It's because Bacall has an air of maturity about Mm -hmm. her and that's even what she's praised for when she's in films like The Big Sleep Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, Whereas Gail Russell here, through her performance and the role, the whole thing is that she's young and naive and sheltered. Yeah, I think that's definitely what it is. Like, it's not just that Bacall gives off a more mature air, because that, that could have its own problematic things going on with it, but it's also just that she feels like in her roles, you know, as they're written for, she's always portrayed as, like, an independent adult woman who's capable of making her own choices. You don't get the feeling when she falls in love with Humphrey Bogart that, like, she doesn't know what she's doing. Whereas, like, Stella feels like someone who's, you know, Rick is the first person she's talked to who isn't her grandfather. And you kind of question her ability to make those choices for herself because so much emphasis is put on her as being, like, a confused child who needs looking after the other weird thing about this movie, plot-wise, is, uh, guess lesbians just be crazy. Yeah, so we got some more horror lesbians here, following up from our horror lesbians in Seventh Victim. And this is definitely, I think, like a quintessential example of coded homosexual villainy, right? Yeah. Where, like, again, you know, no one uses the word lesbian. They don't even go as far as Seventh Victim and use the word love. But it's like, the the motivations don't make sense. Unless Mary and Holloway were... Lovers. Yeah. And it's it's pretty obvious if you know what to look for. It was obvious enough that the censors caught it, mm-hmm. um, at least on the second go-around. And, yeah, because, like, she stands in front of the painting and talks about how, you know, she was perfect and, you know, she was devoted to Mary. And she calls Mary, I think, my darling, even, in one moment. Yeah. And, like, why would, if not, you know, if they aren't lovers... Like, then Holloway was just Mary's nurse who was so upset at, you know, Mary dying that she killed Carmel. Like, that's a little extreme. And they also go out of their way to say, like, when they're explaining how Carmel is really Stella's mother, that, like, Mary was a woman who, like, retreated from motherhood. Like, was, you know, there was a reason she and Mr. Meredith never had kids of their own. So it's kind of clear to me that, like, she and Holloway were lovers. She married Meredith for you know, probably the house and the money, and then this kid comes into it, and et cetera, et cetera. It all kind of, you know, spirals out of control. But yeah, this is a perfect example of how when you have a character like Miss Holloway, who is, you know, no one says the word lesbian, but it's obvious enough for all the adults in the room to get what's going on, then she has to be the bad guy. Yeah. That's the rules of the code. If she's a deviant, she's a bad guy. I also didn't appreciate... Like, we've already kind of touched on it, but the way that they would... Like, they talked about Carmel as, um, you know, she was a Spanish gypsy. She was pure evil. Like, like Holloway says that at one point. Holloway says that, but Holloway is not a reliable narrator. But, like, everyone, when they talk about Carmel, they were like, yeah, she was a Spanish gypsy. But everyone who talks about her is a piece-of-shit person, right? Because the only people we hear about her from are Holloway and Beach. No, uh, Lizzie... uh, hears uh from like the neighbors right we're like gossiping yeah but again like this isn't first-hand accounts right and what we know about carmel from the story is she's the good guy 
right? And she gets redeemed at the end. She's the one who's protecting her. So they were relying on, like, basically this racist red herring, um, which, whatever. Um, And then that gets replaced by this, like, homophobic trope of lesbians be crazy and evil. So it's not the best look. But I I guess, like, I do give a little bit of credit to the movie, because I think it's, you know, it's 1944. I think it's significant to show kind of a, a good and positive theme of reconnecting Stella with her immigrant non-white parentage. There's something about that that feels kind of progressive in light of World War II and anti-immigrant rhetoric going on at this time. Sure. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think this movie, I think I agree with you that like the emphasis on Carmel's like racial status feels like they're trying to play into assumed audience prejudices. Yeah, Um, that's why like to me it's like a red herring and like like they're like pushing it cause like, as a thing, and it just like was like bothersome. Because all that's really important, story wise, like plot wise, is the idea that Carmel is Spanish. Because then, like that's why Stella is speaking Spanish, and it explains why the scent is mimosa, and it you know it gives it, it, you know it fits to all these things. The idea that Carmel is like um, Roma is nothing. It has nothing to do with the story. Yeah. Um, it has no bearing on anything, but, you know, it feeds into, like, an, an assumed audience prejudice. Um, so I think I think you're totally right about that. I'm not, like, super upset about the lesbian villainy, um, if only because, like... It's not so much the villainy, it's the, like, fact that they make her crazy at the end. Yeah, I mean, but, like, what she's trying to do is is crazy like the idea of like like she's the villain i don't mind it's problematic to say lesbians are crazy i don't find it problematic like she's the the bad guy right yeah, and the, yeah. like it all i get that that all connects in together um yeah, i'm not saying it's bad that she's the villain i'm saying it's bad that she gets portrayed as then like loony yeah i understand what okay. you're saying i'm just saying it didn't bother me like like I, but i get what you're you're getting at like the the like problematic aspects of all of that it uh, when you're looking at like movies of this vintage you know it's the fact the matter is like this is the kind of lgbt content that you're gonna be getting and i talked about this a little bit back in our bride of frankenstein episode that like that's not necessarily a problem unless that's the only way you're allowed to have that kind of content right and it's it's hard to figure out like the thing that I guess the reason it doesn't bother me in this context is it doesn't feel like Holloway is a villain because she's a lesbian or a lesbian because she's a villain. Like, both aspects are integral to the plot and are well integrated into the rest of the movie. It doesn't feel like they're giving her, you know, stereotyped um, homosexual traits to emphasize, oh, she's the bad guy. And it doesn't feel like, oh, because she's a homosexual character, we had to make her the bad guy. Like all of those things fit into the story well. Um, so they don't feel, um, gratuitous, I guess you could say. I think Cornelia Skinner is really good in that role, Mm -hmm. um, as kind of this like tightly wound person. She's playing a kind of villain that I find really effective. Uh, that kind of like disciplinarian person, who, like, probably shouldn't have authority over people and does, 
And that type of villain is very effective to me because I ran into a lot of people like that growing up. I think a lot of us did, you know, a lot of teachers or or other figures in our life where you can tell, like, oh, this person shouldn't be in charge of things, and they are. Um, and that always works really well, and she plays that role really well. The institute that she's in charge of, the actual name in the movie is, like, the Mary Meredith uh, Retreat, I think is yeah. the actual name. And, yeah, they really sell it as being, like, a rest home or something. But, like... There's just enough. You know, we get just enough to tell us, like, mm, this place is terrible. We mostly see it through the Fitzgerald's eyes, and they kind of see it the way that, like, I feel like it's probably sold to people. You know what I mean? But we get just enough behind the scenes to, like, I think get the sense that it sucks. Um, you know, even Pamela says something along the lines of, like, she would rather be at, like, a straight-up, like, no, we're a loony bin place than this place that's trying to, like, pretend that it's nice. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's distressing, but it's not inaccurate, this depiction of, like... Because when Commander Beach sends Stella to this place, it's at the moment when she just starts to, like, assert independence. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what it is. Like, she's been living with him, and now she's 20, and Beach is like, you will not be going over to that house and seeing that man. And she's like, I'm 20. You can't tell me what to do. I'm an adult. He's like, well, off to the loony bin with you then. Yeah. Um, and that's, like, very distressing. But it's also like, yeah, that's kind of what they did to women back then. Yeah. Um, and I think it's okay that that's distressing. Like, one of the things I liked about this movie, too, was that when we got into the horror stuff, and we started learning what all the secrets were, they were adult, mature storytelling themes. Like, that the secrets and the things that are going on in this movie aren't coming down to the ancient curse because I, I you know, uh, crossed the path of, like, the wrong soothsayer or whatever. Like, I didn't let a witch into the house, and then she cursed us. Like, it's, no, it's it's an affair, and it's unhappy marriages, and it's, you know, this other stuff that, that felt very, like, this was a movie for adults. Yeah, I think that's the Val Luton influence coming into this movie. Sure, it has the dark and spookiness and the things where stuff's happening and you can't quite tell whether it's, like, supernatural or not. This movie go goes for it and says, nah, nah, man, it's supernatural. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that it does that. Um, I don't think I would have liked the UK cut as much. Yeah, I don't know how that would have worked. I would not have liked it. Yeah. Um, but the adult themes and the history of people's lives, I think, causing the, the predicament that you're in, uh, I think that's the Val Luton influence here. Yeah, it's got that element that you've sort of praised a few past movies before of having where you get the sense that like these people's existences don't begin and end with the start and end of this movie. Right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Speaking of the Val Luton influence, hey, it's Elizabeth Russell again. <laughs> Everyone's favorite portent. Like Yeah, her she she just has the perfect like face for very, very striking features yeah. that are memorable. Yes, yeah, so you'll you'll know, oh, that's her. Mm -hmm. Like so to be clear, she's Mary Meredith. She's in, we see her in the paintings, and then Ghost Mary Meredith is like very, very um, blurry and indistinct, and kind of has a more horrific appearance. But it's well, the you same. You see her face, um, but then like 
the rest of her is mist. And even the face, like, looks a little, like, I mean, it's out of focus and it's blurry, but it feels like maybe they put some makeup on her or something, because it's, like, a little gaunter and and older, even, maybe, looking. And Um, meaner. And meaner, yeah, for sure. Um, But, yeah, it's Elizabeth Russell in the paintings and all this stuff, and it was just, like, you know, because all she does in Val Luton movies is usually just, like, show up to, like, spook you out for a couple lines and then leave, right? So (laughs) it's just, like, somehow she's just the portent of doom. Um... (laughs) The score by Victor Young. It was very good, but it seemed to be trying to alleviate the spooks too much. There were too many times where it felt light and jolly when we should be feeling a bit more tension or a bit more claustrophobic in this house or something like that. And it felt like the music was trying to like pull, like purposely make things not so much for the audience. And it felt like a constant battle with me of, like, the music trying to pull me out when I'm trying to go in for more. They had a moment that was kind of neat where Rick, because he is a composer, he's playing some music and composing it for Stella in, like, the main spook room. Um, Which is, like, the upstairs studio. It has, like, this big studio window. And as he's playing, you know, he's kind of making it up as he goes, and then as the lights start to go down and it gets cold, the telltale sign in this movie that this bad spirit's here, um, the theme goes into a minor key, and it goes dark and spooky with the music. Um, And Rick says, you know, oh, the music, that's just the way the music felt to go, Mm -hmm. Um, which is like a neat aspect of him being influenced by the presence of the ghost. Um, but then it goes back to light and jolly uh, a little bit too much. Um, so that was the only, like, I thought maybe that was a hint of more interesting musical motifs to come, but no, it was just a bit too too much. Like, even when it's daylight, the music, I can forgive it in the beginning when it's just like, light flute and piccolo as you're following the dog chasing the squirrel through the house, because it's the beginning. Okay, but we still get that similar light and airy theme and feeling like halfway through the movie and even three quarters through the movie. Um, when at that point, you know, it just it's undercutting the tension that the directing and cinematography are trying to create. It's interesting. Like, I, I agree with you and utterly disagree with you at the same time because I think you're, the music is doing exactly what you are saying it's doing. Like, the music is very lighthearted, and it is pulling you back out of the the tension. This movie, it is it is definitely, I think, important to say this movie starts very lighthearted. Um, and it takes its time getting to the scary parts. Like, you know, the first signs of, like, really any ghostly stuff is, like, 20 minutes in. Yeah. Um, you'd be justified, I think, in thinking, like, wait, is this... Is this the right movie? Did I get the right movie? Like, when you start watching this, because for a long time it's just, we're in this quaint village and here's this guy falling in love with this girl and blah blah blah. The characters banter, and yeah, the score isn't just lighthearted, but it's honestly like it's Mickey Mousing its way along a lot of the time. But I think, ultimately, this helps sell the horror better for me. Because you talk about, like, you know, it's okay that it's at the beginning, but it's kind of goes all the way through. Well, it's not all the all the way through, but as you said, it kind of goes to the middle of the movie. And what happens is we get these moments of horror that 
almost are like intruding Mm -hmm. and then go away and we're back to the lighthearted. It's almost like you're watching a movie that like starts out as like a rom-com and then this like horror movie is kind of like forcing its way in. Yeah. And that was really effective to me um, because I think that helps make the ghosts and the supernatural stuff scarier because we are grounded in a world where the movie, like the movie making choices, including the music, are telling us this is like a safe, quaint English village. Therefore, like the, the, the world like feels like ours. It feels like a normal place. You know, we don't come in to this movie with buckets of fog going across the moors and, you know, old people in the inn warning of stay away from the old windward place. And, you know, there isn't like a creepy old woman who gives like a poem about like a great curse, you know, which would be like the universal way to go. You know, instead we come across this empty house, the dog runs around and has a lot of fun. Isn't it so quaint and charming? We buy the house, whatever, and then, like, the stuff is coming later. And that, I think, makes the ghosts feel scarier and makes those parts where the music gets interrupted and we're into the horror more powerful for me because ghosts aren't really that scary. I know I gave a big speech about why I'm afraid of ghosts, but on a narrative level, if you're telling a story, there's only so much ghosts can do. They show up. They make noises, they knock things over, but they don't, like, typically do a lot of, like, direct, you know, violent, murderous things. Or if you are watching a movie where they do, I think once you start having ghosts do that, it pushes ghosts over the line where they stop being scary to me. And if you're in that universal mold, you know, where you have vampires and werewolves and things, like, if that's the world you're in, ghosts really don't feel scary at all. It's like they're a little too you know, to use, like, a and d terminology, like, their challenge rating is very low. Like, Van Helsing isn't afraid of no ghosts. But in a movie where it's like, oh, yes, like, I'm 1940s Colin Firth, and here's my sister, and we're in this quaint little Cornish village, then I think ghosts become really terrifying, because these are just normal people. Sure. So I, I agree that it's undercutting, but I didn't have a problem with it undercutting, because I thought it was serving a purpose. Yeah, like, that's why I'm fine with, like, the beginning. I guess I just found when it would repeatedly come back after the dark and spooky things, you know, it shouldn't be so night and day, I guess. I was hoping for some blurring of, like, what's jolly, you know? So where would you like to rank this movie with podcast portent of doom favorite Elizabeth Russell? I've got a spot picked out. Oh, sweet. I do, too. Interesting. Okay, um, well, I'm looking at putting it number 26, below Seventh Victim, above The Leopard Man. Huh, that's where I was looking. Dope! (laughs) Dope, 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 dope. Sweet. So we can just put it there. Yeah, well, so the reason I was thinking there is because um, Seventh Victim just, like, does the lesbian stuff much better. Yeah, I, I went, my eyes went to Seventh Victim because I was like, well, let's compare this to our other horror lesbians movie. And I put this below, you know, because I I really liked this movie, but, I mean, you are right. It is, like, weirdly lighthearted for the first half, which Seventh Victim is not. (laughs) And also, the lesbians are the bad guys, and they're not in Seventh Victim. So, you know, that gets Seventh Victim points. Like, I didn't mind that the lesbians were villains, but I'm gonna give Seventh Victim points for them not being villains. 
Yeah, and I was even thinking, like, compared to Vampire, which is right above Seventh mm. Victim, in terms of how it's crafting that atmosphere mm-hmm. of, like, when you're haunted. Like, there's not really any misty ghosts, but there are shadow figures mm-hmm. in Vampire. Yeah, and I just felt that, like, in terms of the way the movie... Like, basically, the adult themes this movie is talking about. That's why I was, like, you know, above Man Who Changed His Mind. Yes. Um, and The Leopard Man is probably the weakest of the Luton horror movies that we've seen. Yeah, it's it's just, it doesn't have enough mm-hmm. going for it. Um, I, I guess except for Ghost Ship, which didn't rank. Right. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like, you know, thinking about the difference between this and Vampire is interesting because talking about the atmosphere, you know, and you you certainly, I think, wanted a bit more consistency with that. Mm-hmm. The difference for me is Vampire is a movie where at the start of the movie, you slash the lead characters basically leave the real world, the real world and you enter into this like nightmare realm and then you leave the nightmare realm at the end. Whereas in the invited we're in the real world and the nightmares are like breaking into the real world from outside. And that's kind of the difference. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you on all points. All right. So, uh, even though it sounded like we had maybe some differences of opinion on this movie, we, I guess, didn't, actually. We actually <laughs> totally agreed on well, like how we Well, like, we, we identified it. the same things. We just had slightly different opinions of whether it was good or bad that these things happened. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, how much of a problem they were. Yeah. Like, I agree with you, lesbian villain. It's a problem. It's just not as big of a problem to me. Like, I, like I'm trying to clarify. It's not, oh, no, a lesbian is a villain. It's, ah, lesbians be crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's all three things, probably, like, a little bit. But, yeah, for sure, I agree. So, coming into the list at number 26 is The Uninvited from 1944, directed by Lewis Allen. Let us invite it onto the list. <laughs> Just had to get one more of those in. Of course. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, like episode 87 from the 41 Jekyll and Hyde uh, with the guy who played the Commander Beach. Yeah, Donald Crisp. On our website, you will also find an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can submit it through our website ask box, or you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. We have gotten some suggestions and appeals in. Uh, Don't fret, we will be getting to them. Things have been hectic here at Castle Scream Scene. Mm. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you can leave a rating or a review for the show on the service that you listen to it on, that's super helpful. It convinces our computer overlords to share the show with other people. If you don't trust our computer overlords, that's a great idea. And you can share the show yourself by uh, using social media, or if you don't trust social media, another great idea, you can (laughs) share the show through simply using uh, the hole in your face to make sounds at other people who you think (laughs) might enjoy the show. Uh, Is this black mirror up in here? (laughs) Don't trust that technology. That's the real horror story. (laughs) 
<laughs> you hate Black Mirror. I hate Black Mirror so much. Um, another way that you can help support the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast. I gave a spiel for it at the start of the show. Uh, here's the end of show spiel. You can become a patron of the night for just as little as a dollar a month. Be like Claire. Be like Claire. Become a patron. Support the show. It really helps us out because it helps us put the time into the show that it needs to be the show that it is. And, uh, you know, it's money that's going towards maybe upgrading our equipment one day. And uh, it just really helps us deliver this quality content every week. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, speaking of Patreon, Sarah, next week we are watching a patron request. Oh! Nicholas Harold uh, from the Patreon uh, has requested Song at Midnight from 1937. I don't think I've ever heard of this. No, neither had I. It is apparently the first Chinese horror movie, and it is also an um, unofficial... Chinese adaptation of Phantom of the Opera. Cool. Alright, so we're going back in time a little bit. Yep. And around the world. Yes. In seven days. (laughs) See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.